we will continue on today in this great passage dealing with these difficult little theological concepts. Uh, baptism now saves you has definitely got everybody's attention, correct? Uh, we will talk about that as we go along today. Uh, I want to challenge all of you. Uh, we are uh, a few of the guys have decided that they are going to attempt to try to memorize the book of Romans before Christmas. Uh, a big challenge for the church, but if you're interested in trying to accomplish that, I am. I, I put mine, I printed mine out on uh, sheets. Chapter 1 is here, so I'm going to start working on that this week. I challenge all of you to consider doing that. Romans chapter 1, uh, we will be working on memorizing Hopefully, uh, hopefully, almost all of chapter one this this week. So it's a big challenge, uh, but we're gonna uh, the next two weeks at least with Romans chapter one. So start working on that if you'd like to jump in with us. Okay. All right. The more we know and enjoy the glory of Christ, the better we will react to difficulties in our life. That's why we are memorizing the book of Romans. <laughs> We want to know the gospel of Christ better, so we will respond appropriately in the circumstances in our life. The more we understand the gospel, the better we will respond and live in our world in a way that glorifies Him. We are in the second of second major gospel presentation that Peter gives in his book, where he takes like a break and says, Okay, let me give you a picture of Jesus. Let me explain who He is and what He's done. And he does this in the midst of uh, calling them to endure through suffering. And I I think this is very important, and I want you to understand something very clearly. Everybody, I want you to listen real closely, and we're going to talk about this all the way through the sermon. Um, I want to talk a little bit about application, application of sermons, and especially in this section. Peter is writing, you understand this book is somewhat of a sermon. If you read it all the way through, it would be one sermon, okay? And he tells people how to live. He tells wives how they should act, how servants should act, and what they're supposed to do. But along the way, he mixes in these gospel presentations. And there's a reason behind that. Because the motivation behind what we do is the crucial point for everything. Why we do what we do is extremely important. It's not really complicated to know what we're supposed to do in a day. We're supposed to get up. We're supposed to work. We're supposed to provide for our families if we're men. We're supposed to teach our children. We're supposed to honor God with all of our conversation. We know what we're supposed to do, correct? Everybody pretty much knows. The motivation behind that is crucial. Why we do it. Peter makes the point throughout this book to mix in the gospel to tell you why you do what you do. If you understand who Christ is and what he's done, then you will then live out what you're supposed to do. So in the midst of suffering for righteousness sake, somebody treats you bad, you did nothing wrong, somebody's treating you wrong, what should you be thinking? Well, you should be thinking about the gospel. If you're thinking about the gospel, not thinking about your circumstances, then guess what you're going to do? You're going to respond appropriately. That's what he's getting at here. So, I'm I'm going to be honest. If you come to our church, I think you're going to think as time goes along, 
man, you sound like a broken record. I'm going to sound very similar all the time. And it's... And to be honest, I'm going to sound similar because as I go through the books, all the letters do the same thing. Every letter does the same thing. Here's how you're supposed to live. You fail, but Jesus didn't. Look at him, and then you'll do it. That's what it does all the way through the Bible. Everywhere you go, do this. God is holy. I fail. Jesus didn't. I'm alive in him. Go do it. Be holy. That's what it's like. That's our lives. Do you understand that, folks? You wake up in the morning. How many of you wake up in the morning and you immediately roll over, grab your Bible and say, I need to know Jesus more before I start the day? Or do you roll over in your Bible and see, who texted me? Let me get into a nice discussion with these people. Or do you roll over and grab your phone and say, what's going on in Facebook? What's the latest Twitter lines do you understand folks what we put in our minds is what we are going to do if our attention is on the gospel if our attention is on christ then we're going to look like him how important is daily devotions Uh, how about this extremely important a matter of fact you will only live if you do them Am I a legalist that says you need to check off your little devotions every day? No. I'm just telling you that my heart says that if my attention is not on Jesus when I first wake up, I'm going to have a bad day. Do you understand? And if my attention is not on the gospel at 10 o'clock after I've been up and I've eaten my breakfast and I've started doing my daily task, guess what? I'll have a bad day. If I go to work... At a, doing anything, mowing a yard. <laughs> and my attention is not on Jesus, guess what I'm going to do? A bad job. You know why? Because it's not for the gospel then. My attention is on who? Me. How much do we need the gospel? Short answer. A lot. We need it all the time. How do we suffer then, and what Peter does is he takes and says, okay, so here's all your roles. How about when it gets really hard, what are we supposed to think about? When it gets really hard, what are we supposed to think about? Jesus. It's the same answer all the time. How do we suffer for righteousness sake when it goes against everything we think is right? We think of the just for the unjust. That's how we survive. We think about, we remember Christ and what he did for us. These were the four features that we started last week. Two of them we discussed were the suffering sacrifice and the victorious herald. This week we'll cover the resurrected Savior and the sovereign Lord. Let's look back briefly at the suffering sacrifice. I think I could preach 90 sermons just on this verse. 1 Peter 3.18, notice it states, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Again, I want to briefly discuss how we should apply the gospel to our lives. This is a very, very important concept. That four in verse 18 at the beginning is crucial. 
How do we live out our Christian life when we are mistreated? Answer, because Christ died for us. Think on what he did. He explains to the believers how they should respond when mistreated. And he lifts up the gospel in order to help them do it. Let me give you another practical example of applying the gospel to a specific part of our life. I'm going to borrow it from a blog post from Challies I read yesterday. Tim Challies, good blog post. You really ought to read it. It's great. Listen to how Tim uh, applies the gospel to watching pornography and whether or not you should do it. Here you go. Quote, When you look at pornography, you are participating in this mocking of the gospel. You are watching the violation of the gospel. You are enjoying the violation of the gospel. You are being aroused by the violation of the gospel. God says, quote, I have given you this great picture of Christ in the church, marriage. And you watch that portrait be defaced and violated and mocked. And you enjoy that violation, that mocking of God's perfect picture of the gospel, the marriage. And you enjoy it all the while. God says, quote, The purity of sexual relationship points to your purity of love, of the love the Savior has for you. End quote. And you say, quote, Right now I need a different kind of salvation for a different, from a different Savior. A more satisfying kind. And one Christ did not supply for the, at the cross. I need salvation only this God can provide. Pornography. End quote. Do you understand what he did? What did he do? He took the gospel. He understood that it applied directly to the marriage relationship. And then he said, when I'm looking or when somebody is tempted to look at these bad images and these things that are happening, they are saying what to the gospel? I don't want it. I would rather have a different pleasure. Do you understand? So this is the application of the gospel. And beloved, we've got to do this for every decision we make in our lives. All the time. I want you to think about this. I have a project for you this week. I want you to think about this. You're at work. You're doing your job. How does the gospel apply to your job? How does it? You're at work, you're doing your job, and a boss comes up and says, why are you on Facebook? How does the gospel apply to that? How does it? You're at, you're, you're, you've got your little toddler that has been a handful, and they just spilt milk all over the kitchen. And everything is a total disaster in your house. You're trying so hard to keep up with all these monsters running around, little monsters running around. You're at the end of yourself. How does the gospel apply to that? That's all Peter's doing through this book. He's saying, this is how you live. And this is the gospel, and it's the motivation for how you live. Oh, beloved, it's not complicated. It just takes 
takes your mind thinking on the right things. Applying the gospel to our lives. If you're being criticized from an employer, there's a gospel response. If a child is being disrespectful to you as a parent, there's a gospel response. You are feeling lonely. There is a gospel response. Do you understand that? There's a response for every one of those. You're being tempted to sin. There's a gospel response. You have fallen into sin. There's a gospel response. That's all he's doing in these passages. He's saying, look at the sacrifice of Jesus. Look at the resurrection of Jesus. Look at the victory of Jesus. Know who Jesus is and now respond appropriately. That's what it is all about. You could all go home and you could, I, I could stop preaching and I think you could summarize your life that way. If you stop studying the gospel, you stop studying who God is and what he's done, you're ultimately going to fail. Jesus suffered and died for doing what is right. And we were responsible for his suffering. Apply this great truth to your life continuously. We take the Lord's Supper, don't we? we what do we do when we take the Lord's Supper every two months? We rehearse the gospel, don't we? I would argue that we need to do it a lot more. And I'm not talking about taking the Lord's Supper. <laughs> I'm talking about rehearsing the gospel. We should be rehearsing the gospel in our minds all the time. Applying it to everything we do. Every discussion we have. I heard this week that some people were having these, this discussion on a, a group chat type thing. Where they spent hours talking and talking and talking about details. And I had insight talking to one of the guys. And as it went along, I, I, I kept saying... Please bring the gospel to the message. Please bring the gospel into the subject. That's the only way it's going to work. <laughs> but yet, we have a tendency to argue and argue and argue and discuss all kinds of things. And yet, never get to the gospel. We never talk about Jesus. We never talk about who he is and what he's about. And what he's doing right now. We can do this with politics, too. Do you understand, folks? We could talk for hours and hours and hours and never even mention Jesus. And guess what? It will be a fruitless conversation, most likely. The world is not going to fix our problems. you understand? Our hope is in Jesus Christ alone. In what he has done for us, the just for the unjust. We must apply the gospel to keep us from sinning. We must apply the gospel to motivate us to endure being sinned against. We must apply the gospel to remind us where hope is when we sin. Our faith in Christ should determine every decision we make. Our understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done should inform every choice we make. This is why, listen closely, faith is not a one-time event. Do you hear me? Faith, genuine saving faith, is not just you get saved, you believed, and then it's okay, you're good. No. 
It's an ongoing commitment to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's an ongoing understanding and awareness of Him in your life, a dependence upon Him all the time. You're always looking to Him. Do we do this perfect? No, we fail, don't we? What should we do when we fail? Look back to Him. Turn back. Our faith works, beloved. It does good deeds because of our understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It's not the other way around. Here's a problem. Listen. If we think the gospel is all about what we do, then we've missed it. Why? Because then our faith is in who? Ourselves. But if Jesus is the object of our faith and the one we seek and we depend upon and we think on and we meditate on and we apply these truths that we're seeing in 1 Peter 3 all the time, then it's about faith in action, in response to who he is. Okay, so you have this job where you're doing the same monotonous thing over and over and over and over again. And it seems so boring. How many of you, well, you don't have to raise your hand have a job that you feel like I'm just bored out of my mind. I'm bored out of my mind. This is crazy. I can't keep doing this. It's horrible. How do you do this? Answer, every time you're doing it, you're rehearsing the gospel. You're doing it for who? Him. You're doing it for Him. It doesn't matter if you're mowing acres and acres of lawn. And it seems like it's the same thing, but you're thinking in your mind, yep, that last row was for you, Jesus. The just for the unjust. And we're meditating on Romans. And we have all this in our minds, and we're doing this for who? Him, not us. Otherwise, guess what's going to happen when you do your job? Listen closely. You're going to be miserable. You know why you're going to be miserable? Because the only other place to look for, look for approval and look to please is yourself or other people. And guess what? People are miserable. People are miserable. They are always unhappy. And if you look good at all, it's either going to make them jealous, envious, Or angry. Or they're going to seek your approval. And do you want them looking to you? Oh, folks, do you see? This is what it's all about. This is why Peter does this all the way through the letter. He keeps pointing back to Jesus. It's the same thing we talk about with our wealth and the money. And why? Why? Again, why? Why should I save my money? Why should I not go into debt? Because Jesus died for the unjust. Even that? Yes. I walk in to a 7-Eleven. And trust me, I don't practice this all the time. I have to repent. Walk into a 7-Eleven and there's a beautiful display of Reese's peanut butter cups. And they look good. Buy two for two dollars. Big ones. Delicious. All I need to do is pay for gas. 
I look at the Reese's peanut butter cups and I say, hmm, those would be good. I think I'm going to get those. Was there anything wrong with eating peanut butter cups? Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Unless I wasn't doing it for the glory of Christ. Oh, can you eat a peanut butter cup for the glory of Christ? Absolutely you can eat a peanut butter cup for the glory of Christ. You say, does you actually go to that end to do what Christ wants you to do? Not all the time, but that's what I should do. Because I was bought with a price. And what I have now is not my own, but it's His. This is His body, His money. None of it's mine anymore, it's His. Yes, only buy and eat the peanut butter cup for the glory of God and for Christ. I know, y'all are thinking I'm absolutely nuts by this point. I think this is what Peter's getting at. All the way through. We don't think this way, though, do we? Honest? No, we think it will taste good. My flesh wants it. I'm going to eat it. We don't even think my flesh wants it. I want it. We eat it. Again, I don't think eating a peanut butter cup is sin. I think we need to be more aware of Christ in all of our decisions. By the way, if you don't get the gospel, you won't respond correctly, ever. If you don't get the just for the unjust, then everything we do will be based on earning someone's approval or being treated fairly or seeing other humans approve us. Do you understand that's a false gospel? It doesn't work. Knowing that Jesus is our suffering sacrifice is the way we survive in this world. So we've seen the suffering sacrifice. The victorious herald. We talked about this last week. It takes, my take was that Jesus' work after his death, that he went and proclaimed victory over fallen angels who had sought to destroy the plan of God back at the time of Noah. And I know y'all all read the articles this week to make sure you understood it, right? It was on the website or nobody read it. This truth is uh, hard, and I'm not going to die on this, but this truth of Christ being victorious over even difficult situations or people going against God's plan is revealed all the way through the Bible, isn't it? It's everywhere. Look over at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Whenever we face a difficulty or somebody's mistreating us, how are we as Christians supposed to respond? Well, we're supposed to think of the just for the unjust, one. And second, we're supposed to think of Christ is the avenger. He's the one that brings about vengeance. God is the one. So we trust God. Romans 12, 19 states this. Never take your own revenge, beloved, those who are loved by God. But leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So how are we supposed to think? Romans says the same thing. That is, Christ is victorious. He defeated sin in the past. He's shown that he's the victorious herald. And guess what? One day he will take care of all sin in the future too. He's a victorious Lord. 
So it's the same message. We need to understand that. When somebody mistreats us, we think, wait, Christ won, and Christ will win, and I'm okay. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Third, we'll move on to this. Here we go. Let's jump into the deep end. The resurrected Savior. Look back at 3.20. 1 Peter 3.20. Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water corresponding to that baptism now saves you. Ouch. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when you read that, now corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Many of you in the room have probably heard of uh, denominations that say that if you don't get baptized, what? You're not saved. Okay? Well, this would be a passage they would bring out, right? Baptism now saves you. The point is this. In the same way that Noah was saved with seven others from the wickedness of the world and judgment, God now saves us who believe from the wickedness of the world and judgment also. How are we saved? How are we saved from the wickedness of the world and the judgment to come on it? Answer. Baptism. Baptism. That's what it says. We are baptized. So, at this point, we're what? How are we saved through baptism? Well, our salvation is found, however, and notice the key phrase at the end, through the resurrection of Jesus. That's a very crucial point. Baptism now saves you. Other little notes about it. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ is how you could word that. When are we, and what this is all about, when are we united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection? That's when we're delivered, we're saved. When we're united to Christ, when we're put in Christ, when we're baptized into him. Does this mean water baptism now saves a person? Answer, no. Emphatically, no, that's not what he's talking about. Why? Why is it that water baptism is not what Peter's talking about, but rather union with Christ, being put in Christ? Why is it so important? The answer is if it was about getting dunked in this water booth over here, it would make everything that Peter just said null and void. It would say, no, it's not about what Christ did, the just for the unjust. It would be uh, all about you doing something to be just in the eyes of God. He would not contradict himself. Jesus died the just for the unjust so that we could go and be with God and then turn around and say, if you do something, you will be delivered. That makes total opposite sense. We are baptized into Christ. God puts us in Christ. That's the point. And notice Peter says it in the verse. He gives a little uh, a warning. He says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. It's not the religious symbol of baptism that saves us. It isn't the physical cleansing. 
It's a spiritual transformation. Uh, being baptized into Christ that saves us. Not getting dunked in water. Again, think about this. I, I've heard this often when people get baptized. They, they say, oh, I came out of the water and I just felt so clean. Well, you just got out of water. <laughs> you also haven't seen our baptism water. <laughs> And the water that the Ethiopian eunuch got baptized in and the lakes that people got baptized in definitely wasn't clean water. It's not about, beloved, it's not about doing some physical act. If it was about that, wouldn't that just make the cross so insignificant? It would be like, Oh, Jesus died on the cross to pay for sin, but, you know, it's really me getting dunked in some water that makes it right. That makes no sense. Beloved, his point is, is that we've been put in Christ. When Jesus died and rose from the dead, we're placed in him. Now, question. Should we, should we get baptized? Yeah. Why should we get baptized? To point back to what Christ did for us when we were put in union into Him. To show what God has done for us. But again, it's an obedience issue. And here you go, listen to me closely. It could be and should be around the beginning of your salvation. You know why? Listen closely. You know why? Because it's at that point that you begin to identify with the gospel. It's that point when you say, yes, I'm with Christ. Christ died for me. He rose from the dead. I'm with him. Your faith should want to be expressed in baptism. It's an obedient act. That's why in Matthew 28, Jesus says what? Go into the world, make disciples of all men, teaching them to obey all that I command baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? One of the first acts of obedience and understanding that Christ is our authority is that we then get baptized. That's a pitch, by the way. Anybody that has not been baptized, you need to get baptized. If your baptism was after your salvation moment, you've already been baptized and it was after your salvation moment, great. But if you haven't, you got saved and you haven't been baptized yet, you need to get baptized. Because you say, I'm with Christ. I've died, I've been buried, and I rose from the dead. But Peter is not talking about water baptism here. That was a side note. Peter is referring to being baptized into Christ. Christ's victory over death and Satan on Passion Week is where our hope is found. When we identify with him, we now live for him. Nothing we experience can get us down as we long to live trusting in Christ. We have been placed in Christ through His death, burial, and resurrection. We have been baptized into Him. Everyone who believes in Christ gets water baptized, yes, but it's all about our change in identity. And notice he states, who are the ones that are alive in Christ who have been baptized? It's those that, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's those who have repented and believed and appealed to God and confessed their sins and asked, Hey, Christ, save me! He's the one that cleans our 
hearts up. He's the one that clears our conscience because we know that Jesus died in our place, right? This is a reference to when you have become a believer. Repentance and faith is another way of saying have appealed to God for a good conscience. When you've turned from your sin and trust in Christ, you appeal to God and you say, I can't do it. I'm undone. I'm a sinner. I need help. Do you understand, folks? So if you're here today and you haven't appealed to God for a good conscience, when's the day to do that? Right now. Appeal to Him. Say, God, I'm a sinner. I know my only hope is found in who? Christ, who died for me. Appeal to God. Please forgive me, God. And He will through His Son. And you will be put in Christ. You will be baptized in Him. If you will acknowledge your sin against God and your need of a Savior. By the way, every one of us goes and rehearses this over and over and over again. How many of you know this? How many, all of you understand you've sinned this week, right? Everybody in here, we've all sinned. How many times have we gone back to the very first day that we appealed to a God for a good conscience? We go back to that every time we appeal back to Him. Here I am again, God. I blew it. I need you. Christ is my only hope. Here's a question for you. How many times did you repent this week? How many times did you think, man, I blew it here. God, please forgive me. I need Christ. I hope it's all the time. I hope we're doing it regularly. I think all too often we just walk around justifying ourselves to everybody we talk to. Appeal back to God for a good conscience, even if you're already a believer. Jesus is alive. So, how do we apply this truth of the resurrected Savior? that delivered us from wrath of God to our circumstances as believers. Let's think about this again. If we understand that our hope is in our union in Christ, and that it's only through the resurrection of Christ that we're alive, only through His death, burial, and resurrection, only through that, then it changes the way we think in everything we do. It changes the way we view lost people in the world. We look at the world totally different. What does it say? If you have a boss that's unbeliever and they mistreat you, how does being in Christ and resurrected and knowing that you're with Christ in that, how does it make you view your boss? It makes you think, oh, he's lost. He needs the Lord. So when, they, when a boss mistreats you, you automatically do what? Oh, yeah. Lord, please help me to respond the way Jesus did. Let me do it the way he did it. Let me exalt him. This is my opportunity. It produces this compassion for the world. It produces an attitude of continuous thankfulness and contentment, doesn't it? If I know I'm in Christ and my sins have been paid for and I'm right with God and Christ is alive, I'm content. It doesn't matter. I don't need to get rich. I don't need riches. Nothing that I have really matters. It's all open hand. I'm content with everything that God gives me. 
even if it means suffering. Knowing that the suffering sacrifice humbles us, knowing the victorious herald comforts us, God's watching. Knowing the resurrected Savior encourages us. Notice the sovereign Lord. This is great. Look at this. 1 Peter 3.22 Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to Him. Here's a question for you. Where is Christ now? Christ is in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. This means Jesus is presently, and he presently has the position of a sovereign authority, the place of prestige and power. He came to earth as a baby. He lived a perfect life as a servant. He died a sacrificial death. He proclaimed victory over his all wickedness. He rose from the dead bodily. He ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and he is now Lord of all. That is Christ. He's the sovereign Lord who is at the right hand of God. This does not mean, by the way, that the, there's a father and there's a son and the father has one seat and the son has another seat. Okay, be careful. The father is spirit. Only Jesus became a man. Why is he using this, figure, this figurative language? Well, it's the same thing as firstborn. That figurative language means he's preeminent. doesn't mean he was the firstborn, literally. It means he's the preeminent one. The seating at, seated, seated at the right hand of the Father means that he is the sovereign ruler. He's in control. He has authority. And who is his sovereign authority over? It states it. Angels and authorities and power. This is a reference both to the holy angels and the fallen angels. They have all been subjected to Jesus. I hear this oh, oh too often. I hear people say, the devil made me do it. It's all oh, these demons. These demons just, if I could just get rid of this one demon that keeps causing me to stumble. Do you understand who they're under? Jesus is sovereign over every demon. Do you understand? There's nothing out of his control. He is the sovereign Lord over all. And they've all been subjected to him. So if this is true, why do bad things come to happen to his people? Why does Jesus allow this to happen? Answer, look back to Job chapter 1. Go back to our reading. Look at it real quick. Job chapter 1. It fits. Boy, does it fit. There are some great, great truths here, folks. Are, are, are y'all, were y'all not as in awe of verse 20? I don't know about you, but when I get to verse 20 and it says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. After all that happened to him, I'm just humbled by that. Are you? He lost everything. Everything. I want you to notice. 
Things really haven't changed that much from this time, by the way. It's very similar, okay? Who is it that carries out the dastardly deed of killing all of Job's children and killing all of his livestock and killing all of these things? Who does it? Satan does it, right? It's apparently... Now, the thing that's very strange, Satan is not omnipresent. That means he can't be at several places at the same time. So that means most likely, what's this mean? He most likely got all of his demons to do it. But you've got to also recognize some very interesting things. What are the things that actually happen? Fire from heaven falls? A wind comes? Oh, now, you should be starting to just quake just a little bit. Do you understand? That might mean. Because God said to Satan what? All? It's all in your power. You can do whatever you want to do. What does that mean that demons could possibly do? Can they bring down fire? Can they bring a wind that kills a bunch of people? Wow. Now we're starting to see something here. This is scary, isn't it? What do we need to remember? God knew exactly what he was going to do before he did it. He brought it up to Job. Or he brought it up to Satan. Job, have you considered my servant Job? What does that imply about God? He's ultimately sovereign over even all catastrophes. All evil that's happening. This didn't catch God off guard. Now you say at this point, Mike, what in the world does this have to do with 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 and 21? And what does it have to do with 22 here? Answer, the one who died and rose from the dead has gone to heaven and has that sovereign authority over Satan. There is a difference though. What's the difference between Job chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 3? What is the difference? There's one. Look over at 1 Peter chapter 3. Matter of fact, you can see it back in chapter 2, verses 21 to 25 again, too. But verse 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, which in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but the appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Here you go. Listen to me closely. Not only does God, the Lord Jesus Christ, rule sovereignly over all evil, he also has been killed by that evil. And treated wrong by that evil. 
We have a God that is sovereign, but He also understands our pain. That is a glorious truth. Oh, beloved, do you understand? Jesus is sovereign over demonic attacks. Jesus is sovereign over anything bad that comes upon us. Everything. He's sovereign over the baby crying. He's sovereign over it all. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I just want to give a heads up. Just listen closely. This is very important. We are a, a, a church with lots of babies. I want, to, I want you to listen closely, okay? Apply the gospel. Apply the gospel to that. If you have a child that's misbehaving, okay? Listen. Or, or somebody else's child's acting up. Give them grace. Let them, you know, they're just, they're doing the best they can, these moms. Okay? Right? She's beautiful. She's being very quiet right now. At the same time, everybody applies that gospel. If it goes really loud like that, she did what, what was she thinking of? She was thinking of you. She applied the gospel. So we're working together, right? Here's the deal, folks. And, I, and by the way, we just have to think this way more in everything we do. The one who died now rules. He's in charge of everything, and he's compassionate, and he understands what you're going through. And no, nothing that comes against you should crush you to the place where you despair and give up. What should we do if we know these truths? We should respond exactly like Job. We should worship. We worship. We obey. We discipline ourselves. We love others. Because we know Christ is in control. We know He also is compassionately leading us and directing us. If necessary... Remember that little phrase back in first, in chapter 1? If necessary. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith be more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. What do we do, beloved? When we face trials, we understand Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he has ordained these things. And we know that Christ died and he took on all of the punishment for our sin. So we trust Him and we obey and we worship Him. So what does this lack of trust, however, if we don't trust Him, look like in the life of a believer? Well, here's what it looks like. It looks like arguing with everybody. Trying to convince them to do what you want them to do. It also looks like this, believer. If you're not trusting the Lord and you're not depending upon the one who is subjected all the angels are under him. If you're not trusting in him, there's a lack of contentment in your heart. You're seeking pleasure and satisfaction from everything the world has to offer. 
instead of resting in the joy of the Lord. You also might have a complaining heart, always thinking the world owes you something, expecting everyone to serve you, and always being disappointed by how people don't live up to your expectations. Beloved, if you understand Jesus Christ as Lord over His church, you will love the brethren. You will serve other people. You won't expect other people to serve you. Oh, this is so important. Jesus is now ruler over angels and authorities and powers. He has paid for our sin, so now we live for Him. If you don't live for Him, Today is the day of salvation. Turn to Christ. Trust in Him. Jesus was and is and will always be the victorious Lord. I admit, I do look forward to that day when He steps out on the cloud and calls me home. I'm looking forward to that day when He says, this is done. And He cleans house. But until that day, I will trust Him. How about you? I will trust him. He's in control of everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your sovereign Lord. Thank you for sending your son to die in our place. Thank you, Lord, that everything that comes against us is part of your sovereign plan and that you are still in complete control. Father, I pray for those that are in the room that are hurting, that they're at that place where Job was, where... They, something that they love dearly has been taken from them. Lord, I, I pray for their heart. I pray that they will hold on to you. I pray that they will see that you are more valuable than the thing that was taken from them. But at the same time, Lord, I understand that it's painful and it hurts to see this world We pray, Lord, that you will help us to depend upon you and lean on you and trust you and obey you and look to the gospel and apply the gospel to all of our daily decisions. Help us, Father. We need you, God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came for us. I pray, Lord, if there is someone here that has not trusted Christ as Savior, I pray that the Spirit will work on their hearts now. Cause them to repent of their sin and trust in Christ. Know that He is good. To begin to rejoice in the Lord who paid for their sin. We thank you, Father, for this day. We ask now that you help us to remember and apply this message to our heart. Help us to live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name.